WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. Live from WDET in Detroit, this is The Metro, our daily news and culture program bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. Today on the program, we will lead the show off with Mark Irwin with the Ruth Ellis Center to talk about housing and new programs for LGBTQ plus young people. Also, the Detroit Home Repair Fund is in such high demand, there are over 14,000 residents on the waiting list to receive help. We'll learn more from Pat Batchelor. At her State of the State, Governor Whitmer laid out her agenda for 2024, but was she able to accomplish her agenda in 2023? A look at State Democrats' record in Lansing with Bridge, Michigan's Lauren Gibbons. All this plus much, much more on the Metro, but first the news from NPR. And I'm Nick Austin. Today on the program, a look at the Detroit Repair Fund, which is in high demand for residents, plus a discussion with Michigan Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt about what Republicans have planned in Lansing this year. But first, on the Metro, the Ruth Ellis Center is an organization providing services for LGBTQ plus youth and young adults in Detroit with permanent housing services. It's the first year the Kelly Stowe Project is open and residents have moved in. To talk more about the new housing project and how it's helping LGBTQ plus Detroit young people, we are joined by Executive Director. Executive Director Mark Irwin. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Tia. So jumping right in, who is Kelly Stowe? Who was Kelly Stowe? And what is the Kelly Stowe Project? So the Kelly Stowe Project is actually um, a housing model that is designed to support specifically black trans women here in the city of Detroit, who we know are disproportionately affected by homelessness and experience violence at levels that really no one else in the community experiences. Um, Kelly Stowe is a member of our community who we lost um, a couple of years ago, tragically. And to honor her, we named the program after her. Um, now, this is a scattered site program. This is an addition to Claremont Center, which is the home of our permanent supportive housing program. Um, but both work um, incredibly well together. And in fact, many of the young women who participate in the Kelly Stowe Project helped to inform the design of the Claremont Center. So when we think about the Claremont Center or talk about it, it's been uh, uh, in development for a while. You have permanent housing. You have residents now in the permanent housing. What have you seen from the Claremont uh, uh, um, um, Center that you can see expanding throughout the city of Detroit and into other places and spaces to truly have wraparound services for LGBTQ plus young people? Yeah, for the very first time, Detroit's housing continuum now has a program that is specifically tailored to the needs of LGBTQ plus young people here in the city of Detroit experiencing homelessness. So nationwide, we know that up to 40% of all young people experiencing homelessness identifies LGBTQ. And yet Claremont Center here in the city of Detroit is the very first housing program that's designed to meet their needs. So there's a huge gap in resources, but we're incredibly excited that Detroit embraced 
Claremont Center and recognize the need for supportive services um, to meet the, the, this growing demand for LGBTQ youth who are experiencing this. And we think about some of the things that they are experiencing as LGBTQ uh, youth, especially in the city of Detroit and being in an inner, in inner city uh, environment. But what are some of the things that they are experiencing right now that uh, we may not notice or may not see happening? Violence, mm. mental health, right? These are all things that um, affect all of us. But when you are experiencing chronic homelessness, um, when you don't have the same support systems that many of us have, um, all of those things can be exacerbated. Um, the other thing that we're hearing a lot about nationwide, especially for trans young people, is access to gender-affirming care. And at the Ruth Ellis Claremont Center, um, on the first floor, it's mixed use, and we have added the Ruth Ellis Health and Wellness Center. Our very first health and wellness center opened in Highland Park back in 2017, and it has been so successful in reducing um, the barriers that LGBTQ youth experience in accessing healthcare. And so we knew when we designed Claremont Center, we needed to add a second one. Um, and this is in partnership with Henry Ford Health. They have been an extraordinary partner with us. They provide the primary care. It is integrated with behavioral health. We have an extraordinary team of therapists that work on site at Claremont Center. We also have an incredible art therapy studio as well. Um, but this is all designed to wrap around the young people that we serve at Claremont Center. And it's a one-stop shop, right? So your apartment is upstairs. You can go downstairs, meet with your doctor. You can meet with your therapist for, for therapy. You could go to an open art therapy workshop in the evening. There's open mic nights, all kinds of really great activities. And we're trying to show that we can have an impact on the number of young people who identify as LGBTQ and who are experiencing homelessness in the city of Detroit. We can reduce the number that are living on the street today. And we think about that once again in terms of um, social work and, and, like you said, therapy and talking to professionals and, 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 and guiding professionals. That's what you all have been doing with the Ruth Ellis Center at the Ruth Ellis Center, helping social workers and helping other medical professionals actually support LGBTQ youth here in the city of Detroit. So what does that look like? We launched the Ruth Ellis Institute back in 2017 or so. Um, and the Ruth Ellis Institute really is the training and technical assistance arm of the organization. And what makes it so interesting is that we're developing trainings and curriculums that are all informed by the direct services that we're providing on site at Ruth Ellis Center. Um, it's not a think tank, right? We're, we're doing the work and then we're taking what we've learned and sharing it with those systems that are interacting with the LGBTQ plus young people in our communities. Um, so right now the Institute actually is working throughout the state of Michigan, um, primarily working with child welfare professionals on a curriculum called Asking About SOGI. Um, historically and generally, um, our community has sort of embraced this notion that LGBTQ plus people are safer if they're invisible, if we're not talking about things. But mm -hmm. we know that that can actually cause significant harm. And so what the Institute is doing is working with child welfare prof professionals to help them understand that, yeah, it might be a little bit uncomfortable asking questions about sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. Um, but it is necessary because if we are not identifying the specific needs of the youth in our care, especially in foster care and juvenile justice, we could be setting them up for failure in programs that are not designed to support them. And do you think the, I guess, 
the the lack of approach to asking questions or that lack of, of, of wanting to do it, maybe to, you know, feeling uncomfortable. Do you think that is just because, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to hurt my like, you know, why is there such that barrier there of having those discussions and conversations? I think for a long time, these are uh, things that people have either just really not understood, yeah. not had the language to support. Um, we haven't normalized it yet, yeah. right? And so that's what we're trying to do. Let's normalize these conversations. Um, it may be uncomfortable at first, but if we are doing our jobs as child welfare professionals, um, then we have to know how we can best support that unique young person that's sitting in front of you. Um, and if they are uh, a member of the LGBTQ plus community, um, there are things that we can do to ensure their safety. And yeah, that was going to be one of my last questions to you. What are some ways that we as allies, or if you're an ally, you consider yourself an ally, or someone who wants to learn more? What are ways, small ways, just to kind of get you into the door of helping LGBTQ young people, no matter where they are? Vote. Mm. I have to say it. I mean, not to politicize it too much, but we're seeing nationwide um, politicians using the LGBTQ community um, as a, a wedge issue. And we know that this causes direct harm. Uh, to the young people that we serve. Um, so vote. Mm -hmm. The other thing is talk about what you heard here today. Yeah. Share what you've learned today. Mm -hmm. um, check out the, the Ruth Ellis Center's website. We offer quarterly trainings that are open to the community. Um, it's important for us to share everything that we know with anybody who's interested. And so we make this accessible uh, via technology so you can participate virtually or we have in-person trainings as well. Um, but it's an opportunity to learn more about this work and, and not just what we do, but how we do it. And before I let you go, what else is uh, coming for the Ruth Ellis Center this uh, the 2024? Are we seeing any events or any engagement activities that we should know about, uh, especially in the month of February? Um, for the month of February, we're focused on Black History Month. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of internal programs that are happening uh, with our young people. In fact, this past Friday, we kicked off, uh, kicked off Black History Month with a panel discussion um, talking about the history of the ballroom scene, mm, um, which is yeah. just incredible. So we had uh, legends and icons there talking about what it was and, and how important it was in their own lives and what it is now. Um, and it was just an incredible discussion. So we're going to have more opportunities uh, to engage with the community throughout the month of February. And then, of course, our uh, one of our largest pride fundraisers, Catfight for the Crown, will be at the Fillmore on June 14th. Um, keep an eye on our website for ticket availability. But um, it is an over-the-top drag pageant um, like you've never seen before. So. I love that so much, Mark. I was just thinking about, you know, the houses, the different houses with ballroom and just learning about everything and, and the, the history. It's, just, it's an amazing thing. So I cannot wait to learn more about what's happening at the Ruth Ellis Center throughout 2024. We were just speaking with Executive Director of the Ruth Ellis Center, Mark Irwin. Thank you so much for joining the Metro. Thank you for having me. Coming up, a new home repair fund in Detroit will meet has meet, met overwhelming demand uh, for city residents. We're checking to see if it's going to be able to do that as people really want to get a part of that fund. We're going to find out more about this with WDET's Pat Bachelor when we return on the Metro. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. 
Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible, with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. Welcome back to the Metro right here on 1019 WDET. I'm Tia Graham here with Nick Austin. Just a quick weather update. Partly cloudy. It is sunny right now. 35 degrees in the Cass Corridor. Expect highs of 42 degrees today and tomorrow. Expect highs in the 50s in February in Michigan. There are a lot of homes in Detroit in serious need of repair. So many, in fact, that the new fund that has been created with for the help has been overwhelmed uh, with requests. The Gilbert Family Foundation, DTE Energy, and ProMedica established the $20 million Detroit Home Repair Fund in 2022. The goal was to inspect 1,000 homes, find out what needs fixing, and then coordinate a network of contractors to make repairs. So many homeowners responded that the fund has more than 14,000 people on the waiting list. Journalist Nushra Rahman wrote about it in the Detroit Free Press and Bridge Detroit. She tells WDET's Pat Batchelor organizers were not expecting such a huge demand. The way that they described it was an avalanche of outreach and need. They did not expect uh, this huge response from Detroiters. It was designed to help a thousand people. So when it launched, that was the goal. And since then, 14,000 residents have been added to the wait list, which is now closed. So it really just illustrates the huge demand uh, for home repair across the city. Fewer than 200 have benefited from it so far. That seems like a small number. Uh, What challenges has the program faced in connecting with residents who need repairs? So this program, like other home repair programs, deals uh, with issues, you know, getting contractors, um, getting the resources. That's something that I not only heard from, you know, the folks behind this one, but also other home repair programs. Um, it's very difficult to get the needed resources together in a, in a timely fashion um, to to make these, these repairs. And also the cost. I, I spoke to, you know, one Detroiter who ended up getting help from this program, and the cost for his whole home repair, which included the roof, um, his door, electrical work, was somewhere around like fifteen, more than $15,000. So that's something that he alone couldn't have done, but that's one person in this program who was able to, to get the repairs. So it costs a great deal of money. Sounds like red tape is part of the problem. Right, right. That's something that Detroiters uh, have pointed out over and over again. I spoke to one resident um, who applied for the program and received a letter telling her that she was on the, you know, that she wouldn't likely wouldn't be able to get help this year. Uh, and so they redirected her to other programs. But, you know, I didn't include this in the story, but something she mentioned was that one of the options is a loan. And she doesn't want to get a loan, right, as a low-income um, individual, you know, a senior. And so, you know, there's just there are programs out there, but it's very difficult to tap into. And this is nothing new. Um, we've heard this over and over again. But the response to this program is just another illustration of that of that skill of need. 
Especially since you mentioned this is a $20 million fund trying to address a multi-billion dollar problem. Uh, There are other uh, programs out there that you mentioned as well. Could the city maybe get some state or federal funding to augment the private sector uh, and foundation efforts? Right, right. So the city received um, uh, about $30 million um, through the American Rescue Plan Act to address home repairs. So the city, from its, uh, you know, from the money that it received through the pandemic fund, it used $30 million to address home repair. And then another $15 million was added through that, right, from the state. And so $45 million to address uh, this. And even for that program, it was something like 12,600 applications that came in when when the program, the city program opened. Um, But it it, it can only repair 2,000 homes, right? And so, again, you see that huge scale of need that even when money is pumped into it, it's a billion, multi-billion dollar problem. And there's just so many moving parts that need to come together in order to address it that, you know, it's just a patchwork of programs that are trying to do the work, but the problem is is too big. That was Detroit Free Press reporter Nushrat Rahman about speaking with WDET's Pat Batchelor about the Detroit Home Repair Fund. Coming up on the Metro, we'll hear about Jeff Milo's new show as well. We'll also hear from Ryan Patrick Cooper and what you need to know what's happening in the groove. However... This past weekend, the last remaining horse racing track in the state of Michigan closed its doors. Northville Downs closed after 80 years in operation, but horse racing has a long history in Metro Detroit. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Saturday edition of Trackside at Ladbrook DRC on Pro-Am Sports. I'm track announcer Sam McKee with you on what will be one of our biggest shows of the season because today is Michigan Mile Day at Ladbrook DRC, the 43rd running of Michigan's greatest horse race, grade 2, $250,000, a field of 11. That will be coming up as the ninth race on tonight's replay program. The weather was a little bit iffy earlier this morning. It was raining. Track looked like might be sloppy. Cleared up, though, in the afternoon and it's not a bad day for racing at all so let's get things started with the first race first half of the daily double a mile and a on 16th this day here in 1950 the city of livonia was established back in 1870 livonia township was michigan's field. cheese capital and had the stage's Number largest one, apple orchard but why did the township become a city anyways it wasn't for the cheese industry or the agriculture it was gambling and horse racing In 1948, Michigan banned racing on state land, forcing the Detroit Racing Association to move from the Michigan State Fairgrounds on 8 Mile to a new home. Livonia Township had some land available, and if the township could become a city, there was a chance to grab $500,000 in annual tax revenue from betting at the track. That incentive proved strong enough, and Livonia Township became the city of Livonia. The Detroit racing course was built at what is now roughly Meyer and Costco at Middle Belt 96, if you know, you know. Once formed, Livonia became the second largest city by area in Michigan, covering 36 miles. While horse racing was the spark, the Detroit racing track in Livonia was closed and demolished in 1999. Horse racing is officially a thing of the past in the state of Michigan. We are no longer 
with the horse racing here in the state of Michigan. Who needs actual horse racing when you have all of this political horse racing, right? I mean, we're looking at elections right now. People are just betting on that, too. Who's winning the horse race? What's going to happen in November? Got so many channels talking about it. And you know what? You're going to find out about it here also because we are going to be looking at the upcoming elections. But elections have consequences, Tia. And it's also important to remember not just or think about what's going to happen in the future, but also look back at what's happened in the past. And as we head into this election year, that provides very stark contrast into how we view government and the role democracy plays in our everyday lives. Uh, we've got to spend some time thinking about, hey, what happened actually? The actions that officials took when we put them in office. Last year, Michigan Democrats found themselves in a unique position. For the first time in five decades, they controlled the state house, senate, and governor's mansion. What did they achieve with this rare trifecta? Nick Austin spoke with Bridge Michigan politics reporter Lauren Gibbons to discuss what she learned reporting on Lansing Democrats' record last year. The unique opportunity for Democrats, at least in recent decades, for the first time in 40 years, the governor, the House and Senate leadership were all Democratic because House and Senate Democrats won majority control in 2022. And so in 2023, Governor Whitmer listed a laundry list of priorities that Democrats had been sitting on for a long time um, with Republicans in control of the legislature, you know, kind of had to work around the sidelines to get priorities passed, whereas they had the opportunity to ram through a lot of things last year. And so when I went back and looked at her state of the state and what they were able to accomplish, you know, certainly there were some things that they didn't get as far as the governor hoped or things that were kind of paused or tabled for a little bit. But for the most part, most of the things the Democratic majority were able to get through. They've got several gun reforms that Democrats had been pushing for a long time past, tax relief, the retirement tax rollback and expansion of the earned income tax credit for low-income workers. There were a lot of things out there that they said they wanted to do and then did. However, there were some things that it didn't go quite as far as the governor wanted. I think one example of that would be rolling back some of the abortion restrictions on the books. There were some things that one Democrat was not interested in moving forward with. So they had to pass a kind of pared back version of the legislation, but they still made some progress on repealing abortion restrictions. So there were some instances, but for the most part, they got a lot of stuff done last year. That's where that slim majority that Democrats had in the House, only two members, really plays or rears its head in some of this legislation. While a lot of people think, hey, Democrats can get so much done, it still took getting some buy-in from Democrats that might be in different districts or have different agendas. Were there other places that you noticed that that came out where maybe the legislation that Governor Whitmer sought to bring forth wasn't as strong? Or by the same token, maybe something where she was pushed to go further to the left than she would have because of her constituency and trying to keep the whole group together. I think economic development was another big example of where the governor's priorities didn't always align with her Democratic majority. Uh, certainly a lot of progressives in the legislature were concerned about Governor Whitmer's proposals to expand business incentives, pushing through 
additional funding for uh, what's known as the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve Fund, which is a long way of saying uh, business incentives, uh, ways to try and lure major job providers into Michigan. Initially, you know, I th- she she did secure additional funding for this fund um, and also made a lot of deals with electric vehicle battery plants, which is a big part of the governor's economic development strategy. But a lot of those efforts have faced pushback, and now lawmakers are talking about ways that they could potentially change the business incentives program, the way that the state does that, to make sure that companies who are getting these incentives are creating the jobs that they promise and ensuring that those jobs are well paid. That slim majority meant that there often had to be uh, lengthy conversations among members of her own party to try and strike a deal. And one of the things that will always come up when you talk about Governor Whitmer is those damn roads, Lauren, because when you have such an iconic phrase, the phrase giveth and the phrase taketh away. Fix the damn roads. Where are we at with that right now, Lauren? Yeah, so there has not been a long-term sustainable road funding solution yet. And that's not something that has been brought up by the Democratic majority as of yet. The program that Governor Whitmer touted in her most recent State of the State speech uh, was something that she pushed through in 2019, I believe, where essentially the state bonded for funding to fix the state highways. So there's been a lot of construction on a lot of these state projects where there's some concern, especially among local governments, is that is fixing many of the state roads, not the ones um, that people are driving to their neighborhoods or within their communities. Those local roads are still, still seeking additional funding. So that's another one where, yes, there has been some progress being made. Certainly anybody who drives on uh, 696 or a lot of stuff has happened in Lansing as well in the last few years, but there's certainly a lot more that could be done uh, when it comes to fixing the damn roads. Well, let's talk about impacts then that uh, Michiganders can feel right now of the items that were passed back in 2023, passed last year. Is there any tangible impact right now that constituents are mentioning or that you're hearing about that people are feeling from the legislation passed in Lansing last year? Yeah, so some of the legislation that we're talking about uh, will go into effect on February 13th. So there are going to be things like expansion of the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act to include additional protections for LGBTQ residents. But one of the things that I think people will see right away is during this tax season, if people are eligible, seniors will begin to see retirement tax rollbacks. Uh, That's a plan that is extended over the next few years, uh, but that will begin to kick in for this tax cycle. The earned income tax credit, people will be able to get a refund for the past year, but also begin to see those benefits in the coming year. So that's something that people will see right away if they are eligible. The legislature also passed a number of election reforms as part of Proposal 2's passage in 2022, which allows for early voting. But then there were some other reforms that were pushed through by the Democrats at the same time, including additional overseas military ballot protections, 
criminalizing poll worker intimidation, which is an issue we've seen in past elections. So when people go to the polls this year, they will also probably notice some different things, particularly that early voting this year, going in person nine days before the actual election date. That's something that will be a big change people will notice right away. Lauren Gibbons, reporter with Bridge, Michigan. Thanks for joining us on the Metro. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Just like you heard Nick say, that was Lauren Gibbons, politics reporter for Bridge, Michigan, taking a look back at Governor Whitmer's legislative record from last year. Coming up, Michigan Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt discusses the Republican agenda for 2024 amid the stalemate in Lansing. Welcome back to the Metro right here on 1019 WDETFM. We're going to talk a little bit more about politics. This, speaking of politics, smart politics and election discussion hosted by WDET News Director Jerome Vaughn. It's happening February 19th at 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at Hopcat Detroit. You can register online at WDET.org. That's right, Tia. But we want to take a look again. We've reflected on what Democrats did uh, last year, but what's going to happen this year specifically with Republicans as the state house primary special elections were decided last week, meaning the state house is now tied between Democrats and Republicans, 54 to 54. The balance of power right now in the state house, it's pretty tight. But as part of WDET state politics podcast, Mishmash, Chana Roth and Gongwer News Services, Alethea Kasman sat down with Senator Eric Nesbitt to unpack the Republican agenda for 2024 amid the stalemate in Lansing. This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under the radar statewide story that affects you. I'm Shana Ross. And I'm Alethea Kasman. The stalemate continues in the Michigan legislature, but we're one step closer to seeing it end after two special House primaries took place this week. That's right. So let's take a look at the winners. There's Macomb County Commissioner Mai Zhang, who won the 13th House District, which centers around Warren, but includes a part of Detroit. And then there's also Westland City Council member Pete Herzberg, who won in the 25th. It's worth noting that Zong went into the primary with a slew of endorsements, including from Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Herzberg didn't have the endorsement of Whitmer in the 25th, but he was the former representative. And now Westland Mayor Kevin Coleman was backing him. So while the House is tied right now 54-54, which means nothing is really getting done, these two seats are very strong Democratic seats. These two members, while this was a primary election, not these two members, I'm sorry, these two primary winners um, are very, very, very likely to enter the House after special elections take place in April. Things are moving slow. The Republicans want a shared power agreement. They want the Democrats to come up with some sort of formal uh, partnership between the two caucuses. Um, and Democrats are saying, look, no, we have these 56 seats. Two are just vacant right now. You know, we're not going to set up something that will take away some of the, the power of majority that we have right now. Yeah. And so you and I sat down with Senate Minority Leader Arik Nesbitt, and he said that Republicans are basically being shut out of the process. Well, 
as soon as the House went to 54-54 tied, they only had a one-seat majority before 56 Democrat seats last year, 54 uh, Republican seats. And as soon as they lost those two Democrat seats last year, what did they do? They adjourned. They left town. Why did they leave town? Well, apparently they didn't want to work in a bipartisan way, the Governor Whitmer or the Democrats. They adjourned early last year for purely partisan political reasons instead of trying to work on finding common ground. So finding common ground between two increasingly polarized sides, especially in an election year, it's so much easier said than done. I mean, it's not surprising. Given the dynamics at play here, it's 2024. We're headed into an election year. Uh, the, the parties are increasingly sort of separated even outside of um, political election politics that are happening right now. Um, you know, in a way, Republicans may not want to give Democrats a big win you know, heading into November. And honestly, I mean, it's really no different than what Democrats said for years when Republicans were the ones in power. I mean, back when the Republicans had that, you know, all chambers, all powered majority, they weren't exactly hustling to work with Democrats either. And it seems like we've gotten to a point where if the sides are not forced to work together on something that is like incredibly necessary that both sides really, really need a win on. I mean, they're just not going to. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of same song, different artists in a way. If you're the minority party, you kind of have the same complaints regardless of which caucus you belong to. Well, that's it for now. But you can listen to our whole conversation with Senator Nesbitt on the Mishmash podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Alethea. Thanks, Shana. You can hear more from Chana and Alethea's conversation with Senator Nesbitt on the Mishmash podcast. They discuss with Republican candidate he supports for president, election security, and infighting within the Republican Party. Just search for M-I-C-H-M-A-S-H wherever you can uh, get your podcast and check out the video version of the interview on WDET's YouTube page. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET, our new daily news and culture program, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. And, you know, we're going to chat about college entries. You know, I think about being in college or getting into college, and all I had to do was take the ACT to get into school. A lot of the standardized tests uh, had been lax. So to hear that we see standardized testing becoming a, a, a thing in schools again is a big thing, Nick. I guess so. I mean, standardized test was pretty uh, common for me, so I don't know what all the uproar is about, right? You're like, I did it. My grandpappy did it. Y'all can do it, too. (laughs) So, yes, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Dartmouth College, the Ivy League school in New Hampshire, is reinstating standardized test scores as part of their admissions process. The college did not require ACT or SAT scores during the pandemic, but Dartmouth Uh, Professors say including test scores increased school acceptance for disadvantaged students. Pretty cool. Morning Edition's Michelle Martin spoke with NPR correspondent Elisa Nardawari. All right, so tell us how did all this come about? So a group of professors at Dartmouth found evidence that in the years when the college was test optional, disadvantaged students were more likely to leave out their test scores. But those scores were sometimes high enough and might have helped them get into the college. Here's Bruce Sasserdote. He's an economics professor at Dartmouth and one of the researchers. They don't know that their 1400 might be a great score, given the challenges of their neighborhood and educational environment. 
And so they can't be expected to know, and they really handicap themselves in the process. Sasserdote says Dartmouth is working on ways to better communicate to students what a helpful score might be so that students in the future aren't scared off by the testing requirement. Okay, Alyssa, so Dartmouth is one of just a few dozen highly selective schools in the U.S. I was looking at the recent class of admits. A third went to independent schools. That's three times as many as in the U.S. overall. 11% are legacies. So you get the picture, right? Not the hugest group in the world. So why do you think this is important? Like, why should we care? Dartmouth is not economically diverse. Here's why it's important. During the pandemic, hundreds of schools went test optional, including less selective colleges and many public universities. I talked with Zachary Blemmer about this. He's an assistant professor of economics at Princeton. He says lots of those schools are deciding right now whether or not to keep those flexible testing policies. I'm concerned that other very different universities will sort of join the bandwagon of the return to the SAT without themselves considering carefully whether the SAT aligns with their admissions objectives. He's done really interesting research looking at a program in California that admitted students with high GPAs and low test scores. And he found those students did a lot better than expected, and they took advantage of opportunities and resources and had successful careers after graduating. So at the end of the day, Alyssa, so what do we think about these standardized tests? Are they helpful or are they unhelpful? That's kind of up for interpretation. And interpretation is the core of the selective college admissions process. Andrew Ho, a professor of education at Harvard, says this really all comes down to human judgment and making sure that application readers don't get obsessed with the test like culture sometimes is. Well, you know, we have a lot of experience that says that people misinterpret and overemphasize numbers. These are humans rendering judgments, right? And you hope that they have expertise. (laughs) Because in the college application process, Michelle, there are inequities everywhere in essays, extracurriculars, grades, and definitely tests. We know that better test scores correlate with family income. We also know that schools with a majority of Black or Latino students are more likely to be under-resourced, and those students are more likely to have lower test scores. All of this is even more complicated by the fact that it is now illegal to use race in admissions, thanks to the Supreme Court, another piece of the puzzle that admissions officers cannot use in interpreting a test score. That was NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny on how standardized tests impact enrollment for disadvantaged students. You're listening to 1019 WDET, and this is The Metro, our new show connecting Metro Detroiters through through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture affecting the city and our region. Coming up on The Metro, we'll hear about one of our new music shows. My local, really excited to bring you all the details on that. That's coming up on The Metro. It's the Metro on 1019 WDET, your new daily news and culture program, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. I'm Nick Austin. Here with Tia Graham. And we've got not one, 
not two, not even three, seven new music programs here at WDET, all launching this week. Many of our new music shows have been on our airways for years in one way or another. In the case of our Tuesday night music show, it's My Local, M-I Local or My Local, featuring Jeff Milo. And it has been uh, letting WDET listeners know what is going on in and around a Metro Detroit through our local music scene here. He's been doing that for years, did it on Culture Shift, but now he's back with an expanded version. WDET's Rob Reinhardt talked with Jeff about his new Tuesday night show. We know Jeff Milo from the Milo Minute. You have joined us uh, on Culture Shift, which has now ended, uh, but you have joined us on that program for many a year. Tell us a little bit about Jeff Milo. Let us get to know you a little bit better. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Jeff Milo, and I've been kind of this reporter at large contributing to Culture Shift for the Milo Minute for eight years. Wow. Which is technically about a, roughly a 10-minute segment. It's not a one-minute segment. <laughs> but it was a catchy name, uh, and we love alliteration. And But I was invited into here because I'd been a print journalist since mm-hmm. almost 20 years ago. Wow. was when my first internship was. Uh, were you writing reviews, or were you doing live music reviews, or, yeah. or a little bit of both? Oh, yeah, a little bit of both. I started oh. off with, with album reviews, and then I got my own column, uh, early on, maybe 06, 07, for bygone era Rob Real Detroit Weekly. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Formerly Orbit, then absorbed by Metro Times. Mm-hmm. I had a column, and I covered local music, and I was their local music guy because the editors there realized that I seemed to really like writing about bands that were playing the bars on Wednesdays and Thursdays to 20 to 30 people. And I liked meeting those people <laughs> And hearing their stories and getting to write about them. He, uh, the editor at the time, called me uh, the champion of the unknowns, oh, I think was the... Okay. all right. All right. That's fair enough, Was though. the that, uh, name. <laughs> and did you wear that banner proudly? Oh, very proudly. But uh, so my mission was to make them not unknown. That was what was exciting about that. And then I went on to write for uh, Metro Times, Detroit Free Press, just doing that thing, the local music thing. And then I was invited into here to kind of just do little check-in reports, you know, like uh, like I was com- calling in from a helicopter. Here's a local music report. Yeah, uh, yep, yep. Here's what's coming up this weekend. Uh, it's been a it's been a real it's been a real pleasure. And I think what I've always enjoyed most about it, and I think Rob, you know this very well, is that. Here's here's my wild theory is I've always been an optimist and I think it's because I've been surrounded by artists that helps me be an optimist because they are just always full of energy and ideas and I find that very inspiring even if I don't take that and then go play a cello or something creative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with my dime mm-hmm. just knowing they exist in this way and that they are using their time on this planet to do amazing things really excites me. I like being able to tell residents around this area throughout the entire state that you can have just as an exciting of a night going to a small venue and being able to meet someone who's actually probably your neighbor Mm -hmm. who could be just as talented as some of the people you're going to see on that on that stage for the Grammys. So So you are going to be doing um, your show. And exposing people to you know artists that we have heard on the Milo Minute, and then lots of new artists, all as a part of My Local. That's M I Local. So this is going to be on Tuesdays from nine to ten p.m. You've brought a couple of uh, songs to play with you. Yeah. What's the first one? So the first one is by a band called 
Quality Cinema Band. I really love that name. And it's a band that's newer to me. They have their debut self-titled album coming out. They are going to be celebrating in a little while uh, next Friday the 16th at the Sanctuary Detroit, which is in Hamtramck. I believe they just have now shortened their name to just the Sanctuary. And this is... This is a this is an awesome band. So it's born out of the what was a solo project for John Shaughnessy, who's the lead guitarist and and singer. It's now a full band, and they mixed and recorded this album entirely in a Hamtramck basement with a Tascam 388. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it was then mastered by Warren DeFever of His Name Is Live, and impressively pressed at uh, Third Man Records. So that's. That's all very exciting, but this is, I don't know, I get, it's kind of mellow. You could say that. I mean, the band's on the band is on TikTok, as all bands tend to be these days, and they have this really charming post recently asking you, the listener, whether or not you like sick and chill adult contemporary indie rock, something <laughs> that you could uh, vibe with the homies to. <laughs> then this is something. This is my favorite song on the self-titled album by Quality Cinema Band, and it's called After All. Cinema Band from right here in Detroit. And that's what MI Local, My Local, is going to be all about with Jeff Milo, who's going to be joining us as another one of our new show hosts on Tuesdays from 9 until 10 p.m., playing things like that and so much more. This is the Metro here on 1019 WDET, our new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture affecting the city and our region, where I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham. But Tia, you don't get to quite speak yet because you spent a lot of time laughing at me in this last break. I've never had someone hear what I like to drink, my favorite Fago soda flavors and just have them laugh in my face. Tia, can you explain yourself? it's odd for you to just jump out and say, oh, cream soda. What? Cream soda is amazing. Out of bagels, the lineup, cream soda? You you need some cream soda in your life. That'll take you back. A little black cherry on there as well. You're good to go. Oh, my Lance. I don't know what's going on with your taste buds. Mine, personally, a little rock and rye, you know? Rock and rye was great when I was seven. I knew you were going to try to play me. It's fine. It's but, fine. But then <laughs> my taste matured. To cream soda? Yeah, you know. Grandpa and it, drink? And if you have a mature palate in your ear 
for music, then maybe you should be listening to In the Groove <laughs> with Ryan Patrick Hooper. He's our man who's going to be taking over the airwaves in less than or just exactly five minutes. Yeah. Ryan Patrick Hooper, what you got coming up on the show today? Oh, uh, man. Well, you know, we were able to to get this done yesterday. It was it was a feat of engineering, of love, of passion. So many kind words. Some cruel ones, too. The reviews are in. Uh, mind-bending is a term that keeps getting tossed around, Nick. I think that's a positive. Is that getting tossed around by you? No, that was uh, that was Chris. That was Chris Campbell from the Progressive Underground. He's he's got a vernacular. Who sent me an email? He said I, I tuned into the debut of In the Groove, mind bending, complete and utterly mind bending. So I don't know how to read that. Really, uh, I'm not sure if that's a compliment. Then he said, "Keep pushing." Like I'm trying to <laughs> okay, overcome okay. like an illness. Okay. Uh, so in the groove, I, I I love that. I think we covered a lot of musical genres yesterday. I've got uh, a lot of great local music. You had that up and coming uh, young talent Jeff Milo on the show. Uh, he'll be joining us too. We're getting ready for the debut of My Local tonight. Uh, very excited to have that as part of our programming. So give us a little preview of that. Give us some local music. I've also found uh, some local music of my own that I'm really obsessed with. Soleil Kastar. Are you, are you hip to this yet, Nick Austin? Not my world, man. Go ahead. Tell me. Really, really wonderful vocalist. Uh, bring in some house energy. It, it feels like Detroit. Sounds like Detroit. I'm really, really excited to play Soleil Kastar here on the show. And then um, it's been unfortunate there's been so much loss that we have to kind of go through. But I do want to say a fond farewell to Austin family man Barrett, who's kind of like Bob Marley's secret weapon played with the Upsetters. And if you know anything about the Upsetters and some of that dub stuff of the early 70s, they loved covering Motown and doing insane dub versions of it. So I've got a little bit of that as the sun starts to peek out here in Detroit. I'm going to try to match that to open up In the Groove with some really fantastic dub that I think will get people's feet moving and dancing. I got some voicemails from people we're going to play too. Uh, it's It's been really incredible. The kind words and the energy that I've gotten back for In the Groove has been really, really lovely. Whether, you know, it's tough to decipher mind-bending being positive or negative, Nick and Tia, I'm not sure. I wouldn't get too caught up on it, man. I'm <laughs> saying, you know, you just go out there and you say, hey, if I'm bending minds out here, at least I'm having an impact. And what do we want to do on this planet if not just have an impact on oh, the lives that, of others? Ain't right, that Ryan? the truth? We're also going to highlight some of the, the big... Grammy winners from over the weekend. We played some of Amp Fiddler and Michelle and Dicello. Um, that was really lovely that we were able to honor Amp with that Grammy award over the weekend. But we're also getting into some SZA and Phoebe Bridgers, who were the big winners over the weekend. They had the famous photo of like too many Grammys to hold. They could barely carry them out like Lauren Hill style. So that's all ahead in the groove here on WDET. All right, man. Who knew joining the weight room would be such an important factor if you're a Grammy-winning <laughs> artist, man? Got to get your strength up. You never know when you'll need a wheelbarrow or something to haul out your winnings. But that's going to be our time here on the Metro here on 1019 WDET, the February 6th edition that you can listen to right now online or you can go online at WDET.org. And you can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The Metro is produced by Sam Corey and David Lyons, Jack Philbrandt and Rob Reinhart. Nate Bender is our technical director. Music by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn and program 
program director is Adam Fox. You heard WDET's Pat Bachelor as well. That's right. You are listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Did you say pro-dam director? That's you like know, a new position. You know, and I was going to say shout out to Adam for being that. Yeah. <laughs> WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.